Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Human Monsters. Levi Boone Helm was born on January 28, 1828, in Lincoln County, Kentucky. His family was reputed to be a hard-working, respectable, God-fearing, and law-abiding family. They made their living through agriculture, though it wasn't nearly lucrative enough to sustain them. Every garment became a tapestry of patches. They starved from one micro-ration to another and were frequently undernourished. They later moved to Jackson Township, Missouri, where there were more opportunities for Boone's father, Joseph, to provide a higher standard of living for his family. In Jackson, the Helm family befriended many of the locals and were highly regarded and respected. There was such a strong sense of community that when Joseph and his little children struggled during the harvest season to keep up with the workload, some of their neighbors volunteered their time to help the family. The Helms were also quick to help their friends when they learned of labor-related shortfalls. Boone's friends' fathers taught him the tricks of the furrier trade, everything from hunting and trapping the animals to skinning their bodies for the pelts. It was gruesome work, and it made many of his friends squeamish. But to Boone, it was no more unsettling than shucking corn. Indeed, there was nothing about blood, guts, entrails, and variety gore that unsettled Boone Helm. This wasn't his only demonstration of strength and fortitude. He was eager to prove to anybody who dared cross his path that he would not tolerate any show of disrespect. The consequences arrived special delivery with a fist in the face. He wasn't the only man in town to behave this way. The difference between him and the other local toughs was that he always appeared intent on literally destroying his opponent. On more than one occasion, he'd been pulled off as victim for fear that he would kill the boy. His next target was the boy who'd pulled him off. This kid knew how to hold a grudge. 
The most chilling thing about these potential executions was that he never seemed to be full of rage. It was a cold, calculated operation, like slaughtering an animal for its pelt. Boone loved the resulting spectacle, though it damaged his reputation to the point that some of his friends turned their backs on him. It didn't bother him at all. He enjoyed the attention, whether good or bad. He saw himself as an anti-hero of sorts. His ego wasn't fragile, so he didn't rely on the attentions of others to prop up his self-esteem. His violent tendencies didn't ingratiate him to everybody, but there were many people in town who found it amusing. While he was still a child, Boone enjoyed showing off his strength and agility for onlookers. He was good with a blade. He would throw his bowie knife into the ground and retrieve it from atop a horse at full gallop. During his teen years, he would take on grown men in exhibition wrestling and boxing matches. To everybody's shock and amusement, he humiliated these men. He had proven to his community that he was the toughest man around. Occasionally, he would challenge men in taverns to fights, and he won these brawls too. He caught the eye of many of the town's young women, who dreamed of taming the rebel with the iron fist. Boone's relationship with his family was in freefall. His father rarely spoke to him because Boone had become so quick-tempered. How would his father be able to discipline him while he was making short work of the town's toughest and strongest street goons? His mother was disappointed by what Boone had become. His brothers, initially in awe of Boone's strength, agility, and bravado in the face of violence, became disillusioned and kept their distance from him. He wanted people to fear him, but he hadn't counted on his family being among them. It wasn't just Boone's family who grew weary of his hair-trigger temper. He frequently ran afoul of the law because of his violent behavior, and this led to frequent run-ins with the local sheriff. The two got into heated exchanges, with Boone keeping his hand on his knife and the sheriff keeping his pistol at the ready. On one occasion, when the sheriff issued a warrant for Boone's arrest, Boone walked his horse up the stairway of the courthouse and straight into the courtroom. The circuit court was in session and Boone verbally abused the judge. Meanwhile, the custodial staff prayed the horse had attended to its scatological needs before entering the courthouse. The assault charge was waived, but Boone was charged for contempt of court. As Boone rode past the sheriff and his men on his way out the courthouse, he said, Better luck next time, boys. Boone began courting Lucinda Browning when he was 20 years old. He was still living with his parents and drinking all his income. He had a reputation as a rolling stone in town, so Lucinda was reluctant to see him. He turned on the charm and worked to convince her that he wasn't just going to be a flash in the pan. Lucinda was 17 years old and seldom bereft of worthy suitors, but she found Boone's animal magnetism hard to resist. He behaved himself long enough to win her hand and gain her parents' approval. Despite all the effort Boone invested in wooing Lucinda, his soulmate was the bottle. 
He got so drunk the night of their wedding, he had to be carried to the marital bed. Lucinda spent the night keeping watch over Boone to intervene in the event that he might choke on his vomit. When he woke with a hangover, he took out his frustration on her. That day would set the tone for their marriage. Whether the notion that a man can rape his wife was either unheard of in 1848 or it was never discussed because it was a sexual matter, Boone dragged her to their bed that day and subjected her to an onslaught of sexual violence. He demanded perfection in everything she did. If he was dissatisfied with her efforts, he would beat her, often with his belt. Meanwhile, his behavior as the husband and breadwinner could hardly be described as exemplary. He spent most of his time drinking and gambling with friends and transient gold miners. Most of the money they lived on came as a stipend from Lucinda's parents. It was no longer unusual for Lucinda to be seen with black eyes and other injuries as she went about her business in town. Everyone knew it was Boone's fault. After all, his violent reputation preceded him. There were no laws to put him away for the abuse, but it did tarnish his reputation. Boone's behavior only got worse. He ran up large tabs at saloons and refused to pay them. It was Lucinda who struggled to settle up with the proprietors. Though Boone demanded that their home be spotless, he didn't exactly make it easy to prevent the domicile from running to squalor. He would do things like ride his horse indoors. It got so that the horse became a fixture of the interior of the house. Her husband was a pile of shit. Now, she had to clean up foothills of excrement in the path of a horse. He also fed the horse from his plate at the dinner table. The horse was being treated better than Lucinda, almost like a second wife. The only escape from her marriage was the possibility, however remote, that he might choke on his vomit in his sleep in a drunken state. She no longer checked on him out of concern about this. She welcomed it. She would only wake when he puked on her, or when he appealed to her for sex while inebriated. Sometimes she was successful, but other times he was sober enough to bring the act to conclusion. He would leave her with a black eye or two, as a souvenir if her resistance failed to deflect him. At that point, she preferred getting punched to being raped. She was sickened by him. When Boone returned after a month of working a gold mine with friends, he learned that Lucinda had initiated divorce proceedings. Between abuse and financial deprivation due to his gambling and drinking, Lucinda could not identify one benefit of having been married to Boone Helm. Boone assumed that a paramour put up the money to terminate his marriage in order to cuckold him. The source of the financing was even more shocking. His own father. His father was so ashamed of his son's conduct that he felt the only way to put things right was to help Lucinda part ways with Boone. There was nothing he could do to contest it. He didn't have the money to hire an attorney, and there wasn't one person in town who would have vouched for his character. Lucinda was pregnant with his child, but even this wasn't enough to convince him to redeem himself by changing his ways. He decided to return to his family's farm and live there as a bachelor.
he was in for yet another shocking development. The divorce bankrupted Joseph, and the family moved away. The way his father saw it, Boone's actions besmirched the family name, and Joseph was determined to do everything in his power to maintain the family's honor. They headed east. Boone didn't know where his siblings went, and they surely benefited from his ignorance of that fact. Boonhelm had hit rock bottom. He was nearly friendless, and his relations with the family members who still maintained contact with him, like cousins, became strained when he borrowed money from them. He was hated by everyone in town. The friends he did have let him sleep on their floors. Sometimes he would resort to sleeping in horse stables. Two options offered a more prosperous future. Gold mining was a flourishing industry in Texas, California, and, most famously, the Yukon. The problem was, though Boone was often a loner, he knew it was unwise for a man to travel alone with gold on his person. He chose his cousin Littlebury to accompany him. He considered him to be trustworthy and intelligent. He also knew that he would be a tempering influence that would prevent him from giving in to his violent and self-destructive impulses. Boone tried repeatedly to sell Littlebury on the grand adventure he was dreaming up, but he wasn't buying it. Finally, after a night of drinking, Boone, employing the reality distortion field to full effect, convinced Littlebury that there was nothing to lose. They shook hands on their verbal agreement, and the deal was done. The next morning, when Boone went to Littlebury's house to collect him, he was disappointed to find that Littlebury hadn't packed his belongings. He said, what do you say to the Texas question? Littlebury had given it much more thought and realized the last thing he needed was to be trapped out in the middle of the wilderness with a violent and unstable drunkard. Littlebury delivered his final decision. I say no. The next thing Boone knew, he was watching blood spouting out from Littlebury's chest from the parameters of his bowie knife's blade. Boone had succumbed to such overwhelming rage, he blacked out. Both men were drenched in blood. They were both shocked by what Boone had done. Littlebury collapsed to the floor. After the death rattle, he grew still. Boone checked his body to see if there were any vital signs. None could be detected. He pilfered as many valuables from Littlebury's home as he could carry. He retrieved his bowie knife from Littlebury's heart. With that, he departed for California. Days later, Littlebury's body was found. A posse was formed. They remembered Boone talking about heading to Texas. They embarked on a reconnaissance mission to bring him back to face justice. Fortunately for Boone, they were unaware of the detour he had taken. Boone Helm was devoid of survival skills. After riding through one forest after another, his horse starved to death. Boone was starving and dehydrated, and resorted to sucking mud from a drying stream to withdraw what remained of the moisture. Compared to Boone Helm, the wild game of the region were living like kings, 
When the posse caught up with him, he was a shell of the violent lush who had caused so much trouble at home. When he was taken into custody, it was more comparable to a rescue than an arrest. He was willing to confess to anything in exchange for food, water, and shelter. During the ride home, Helm demonstrated signs that his mental health was destabilized. He would laugh for no reason. He talked to himself. A couple of times, he jumped off the sheriff's horse and ran away, only to be caught and hogtied back to the saddle. At one point, the sheriff issued orders to kill Boone if he tried to escape again. By the time the posse brought Boone home, it became clear that he was no longer a threat. He was fragile in mind and body, flinching at any unexpected noise. A judge had Boone examined by a physician to ascertain if he was caught in the group of mental illness or just faking it to avoid prosecution. The doctor consigned him to a life of rehabilitation. He was remanded to a psychiatric hospital. During the wagon ride east toward the mental institution, the facade of madness with which Boone had convincingly duped the judge and posse fell away like a shell. Once he was in the care of the hospital, he undertook the project of presenting himself as a model patient. He was quiet, agreeable, laid back, and polite towards staff. He was everything they wanted from a patient, and he became a favorite of many. They would even reward him with cigarettes in exchange for his obedience. He had a sense of humor which was also widely appreciated. He was so successful in gaining the staff's trust that, after a long-running routine of taking a walk at night at a section of the property that was not fenced in, he escaped while his escort was busy with less manageable patients. Another stroke of luck was that it would be hard to ascertain where he went since nobody among the staff would cop to having neglected to watch his movements that night. The staff didn't expect Boone to last long in the wilderness. He nearly died the last time he attempted to live off the land. This time around he got lucky. He met a prospector who was heading westward to join the gold rush. The prospector was older wiser, better equipped to survive the wilderness, and had experience working as a miner. Bowden couldn't have had a better traveling companion at the time. Their camaraderie didn't last long. The man caught Boone rifling through his belongings. He was only able to stop him by restraining him and dragging him away. Boone's strength diminished due to the period of starvation in the forest. It didn't help that the psychiatric hospital provided a poor diet and a sedentary lifestyle. The prospector knocked Boone to the ground with one punch. After playing possum for a moment, Boone rose to his feet and pounded the prospector in the face with a rock. He bashed the man's face until he fell to the ground and beyond. He continued beating him with the rock after the man died, until his skull was broken into splinters. Boone took all the man's possessions, including a donkey, and headed west. 
Along the way, Boone would kill and rob any man traveling alone. Killing them meant he could steal everything he wanted without facing their resistance. He began to starve again. One day he killed a man who had hunting supplies, but hadn't done any hunting. After turning the man into a corpse, cramps and dizzy spells from starvation began to gnaw at his stomach. It occurred to him that if he didn't eat soon, he would join the man in death and become a banquet for scavengers. Boone was determined to avoid this fate. He was desperate to stay alive. In his right mind, and under ideal circumstances, the following actions would have been unthinkable to him. He was too hungry to care. He drew his bowie knife and crawled to the man's body. After cutting the man's clothes off, he plunged the blade into his flesh. A pool of blood surrounded his knife, swelling second by second. He peeled his skin back. He cut a hunk of the man's muscle out and headed to the campfire. Hey, Humo soldiers, it's October 30th this very minute, and if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, like I do, you know how the diminished presence of the sun affects you. Some of you will head to work in the dark and come home in the dark. You're constantly tired. It seems like you can never get enough coffee, tea, or whatever stimulant helps you to drag yourself to work. You get depressed, you get listless, you get irritable enough to become a human monster in your own right. Though I work from home, it doesn't mean that I don't have non-podcasting things to do. To motivate myself to go to the gym, or go Christmas shopping, or do the rest of the adulting I'm forced to do to stay alive, I now turn to an elixir that has boosted my ability to be productive and stamp out the tendency to procrastinate. It's called Magic Mind and it has succeeded where caffeine has failed. I carry these little bottles of Magic Mind wherever I go, and with a quick shot, I can give myself a kickstart without the uncomfortable, edgy feeling that I would get from caffeine. It's good for me as a writer because with its cognitive benefits, it intensifies my ability to focus. Even better, taking Magic Mind will not affect your ability to sleep at night. Caffeine is one of the major factors causing insomnia, but Magic Mind will not have you tossing, turning, and turning the pillow over to the cool side. Magic Mind is not made by people wearing hazmat suits. It is made with natural ingredients like matcha, bacopa monieri, ashwagandha, radiola rosea, lion's mane mushrooms, and cordyceps mushrooms. These ingredients reduce stress, inflammation, fatigue, and cognitive deficits while boosting your immunity and energy levels. You're not nine years old anymore. Half the time you're disappointed by the life you wake up to. It's hard to force your way through it without physically feeling restrained by your own body. Let Magic Mind get you out of your own way by giving you the boost it's given me. Like me, some of my friends count themselves among the living dead. After trying Magic Mind, you'll recapture your love of life. You'll live your life with as much gusto as a nine-year-old on Christmas morning. Try Magic Mind now by going to magicmind.co hm and you can get 40% off your subscription for the next 10 days 
by entering the promo code HM20. You can find that information in the liner notes of this episode. After the first 10 days, you can still get a discount, that being 20%. There is even a money-back guarantee. Do yourself a favor and revitalize with Magic Mind. You won't regret it. He watched intently as he dangled the meat over the flames, using the blade of his knife as a pan. The flesh crackled and hissed. His blood sugar was so low he had to use both hands to hold the knife, since they were shaking. He drooled involuntarily. The meat was still rare, but he couldn't wait any longer. Though one's first taste of human flesh would doubtless be a pivotal moment in most people's lives, he didn't feel any different. He chewed and swallowed in a frenzy so he could drop something in his empty stomach. Now that he felt the lump of flesh crash land in his stomach, he was ready for another portion. He dragged himself to the corpse and cut a larger chunk of meat off. This time he was determined to cook it thoroughly. Cannibals say human flesh is comparable to pork. If this is true, he put himself at risk of food poisoning, but he was too hungry to care. In fact, he ate so much of the man's flesh that his gluttony nearly led to nausea. It had been a pivotal experience after all. Now that he was willing to kill another human being and eat their flesh, he knew he could survive in any circumstance. The next time he encountered a caravan, he traded some of his rifles for supplies and a horse. It was about this time that he landed at the California border. During his travels, Boone learned about the exploits of some of his relatives, those being his cousins, the Johnson brothers. Like him, they had a reputation for violence and gambling. Homicide and cannibalism, not so much. He joined them for a drink one day. One of them bragged about a barroom fight that ended with his opponent losing an eye. Another told of a gunfight. None of this talk impressed Boone. He rolled his eyes at their bravado. At one point, one of them said, What have you done to roll your eyes at us? Boone said, Many's the poor devil I've killed at one time or another and the time has been that I've obliged to feed on some of them. Nevertheless, he joined them as they went about the business of prospecting for gold. Boone spent his money as soon as he made it. He also made enemies among the other miners. He started fights in saloons. He got into gunslinging contests. For many of the participants, it was like playing chicken, with each party challenging the other to go all the way. The difference was that Boone wasn't reluctant to kill. His cousins grew tired of his behavior after a while. He was always vindictive and pugnacious, looking for any excuse to engage in violence. They were also tired of doing half of his work for him. At one point, they had a meeting to discuss the possibility of excluding him from their future plans. As they considered their options, Providence intervened. After murdering so many men, Boone attracted the attention of law enforcement. Boone apologized to his cousins, thanked them for their hospitality, and fled the area, resuming his journey to the west. His cousins were relieved.
Boone encountered many other travelers along the way. If they had considered robbing him, his tales of killing and eating other men put the kibosh on those plans. His reputation preceded him, and eventually Boone built a posse of six friends. They taught him the fine art of armed robbery. He taught them that a dead witness tells no tales. Among these people he was feared and respected, and he couldn't have asked for better companions. They obtained many quantities of gold by doing this. They had to lay low throughout much of their journey, as word of their crime spree spread throughout the country. A sheriff in Oregon dispatched his lawmen to find the posse, but by spreading the word that they were wanted men, Boone and his men knew when and where to escape. Nevertheless, they didn't want to attract more attention, and murdering the sheriff, as Boone would have been inclined to do, would only have made the situation worse, so they left the state. What they decided on was they would move to Camp Floyd in the Utah Territory. The Comstock Lode had become famous for being rich in silver, providing opportunities for migrant laborers. The men heard about the preponderance of Mormons in the state and their reputation for polygamy. They assumed it meant that the state was running wild with loose women with at least two for every man. They would have been disappointed to find out that Mormonism is a highly conservative religion that forbids the consumption of caffeine, let alone promiscuity. They arrived in Utah in October of 1859. When winter arrived, Boone and his cohorts found an abandoned cabin and chose to stay there during the winter. As the snow piled around the cabin, the men had fire for heating and cooking, but there was nothing to occupy their minds. Cabin fever was inevitable, and the men began to bicker with one another. You could only spend so many weeks trapped in a room with Boone Helm before you were ready to strangle him. Adding to the stress was the fact that their limited supplies were not going to last the entire season. Surprisingly, Boone was more reserved than usual. He was quiet and even-tempered, very much out of character. He was biding his time and determined to leave as soon as there was some relief from the harsh winter conditions. A man named Burton befriended Boone at this time, as he wasn't sure the others would survive, and there would undoubtedly be strength in numbers. After Boone made the last of the oatmeal rations the men had been living on, he brought one of their horses into the cabin to slaughter it for meat. After the men ate all the horse meat, they fashioned their hides into snowshoes. Boone told the other men that he was leaving. It was still winter, but he decided if he was going to risk starving to death in the elements, it was better than dying in the cabin like a coward. Only Burton and Boone survived the journey towards civilization. Boone subsisted on dried horse meat and melted snow to wash it down. He didn't sleep because he feared he would succumb to hypothermia. At one point, Burton's horse collapsed and soon perished. Burton refused to risk appearing weak, choosing to die a slow and quiet demise within the grasp of winter. Boone completed the journey and arrived at Ford Hall. He was disappointed to find that it was abandoned for the season. There was shelter and a surplus of firewood, 
but nothing else lent itself to exploitation. Burton woke and assumed he had died. A contradiction of this assessment arrived in the form of warm hands and the putrid breath of Boone Helm. Boone hauled Burton through the woods and into his shelter at Fort Hall. Inside, a fire was blazing. Boone spent that first night sitting cross-legged with his back to the fire and his pistol in his lap. They didn't have much to protect, but without a place to squat, they would have nothing. So Boone guarded the house with his life. Burton drew comfort from this and fell asleep. Moments later, Burton woke. The man who saved his life was now looming over him. He held his bowie knife in his hand and was looking at Burton with the fire of lust in his eyes. Boone looked gaunt from all the starvation. Burton remembered what he heard about Boone's propensity for cannibalism. Though he had originally dismissed the claim as a means to intimidate others, there was something in Boone's eyes that suggested it was in the realm of possibility. Burton tried to say something, but hunger and thirst left a drought behind in his larynx. He was only able to produce something audible when he felt Boone's blade press into his skin. The knife was so worn and blunted, Boone had to lean his weight on it to make a satisfactory incision. Burton tried to fight him off, but in his weakened condition, there was little he could do. Boone punched him in the head, which left Burton dizzy. Boone began sawing the blade back and forth. He had been surgically precise with the horses, slaughtering them like a seasoned butcher. This was a hack job. Burton screamed bloody murder, but it did nothing to elicit mercy from Boone. He sawed to the bone. He cracked the bone by stomping down on the knife handle with his boot. Burton passed out. Burton woke within the hour to the smell of roasting meat. The smell was almost erotic after the protracted famine he suffered through. His stomach growled, crying out for sustenance. Then he realized he was the source of the meat course, and he went into shock, followed by dreamless sleep. The last sound he heard was Boone's lips smacking as he awaited his sumptuous meal. A day later, Burton woke. The fire was still burning, and his amputated leg lay as bones elsewhere in the room. It was like he woke up in hell with Boone as his roommate, the avatar of Satan. Incredibly, Boone carried on as if it were the good old times. He continued to cut and roast sections of Burton's leg, and even handed him portions of his own flesh to eat. The very thought of eating it made Burton nauseous, but starvation can drive a man to do things he would normally never do in a civilized milieu. In the meantime, he would engage his tormentor in conversation. After all, if Boone would amputate his leg and eat it, it wasn't wise to test him, not with so many other options on his body. Burton wouldn't have to suffer much longer. One day, when Boone went out to chop down trees and bring back firewood, Burton grabbed one of his pistols and blew his brains out. When Boone returned, he was disappointed. 
It wasn't that he had affection for the man and would feel lonesome in his absence. Not at all. The downturn in his fortunes, as he saw it, was that he would not be able to slaughter Burton piece by piece with him as his only source of fresh meat, even though his stump was sure to become infected. It didn't occur to him to hunt wild game like rabbits and deer. He wrapped Burton's leg in a flannel shirt, strapped it across his shoulders, and embarked on a new journey. Boone's journey ended in Salt Lake City. He was a known killer, and he was bribed by Mormon elders to protect the interests of the silver mining industry. There were two miners in particular who were causing the most trouble, with each believing he was the toughest man in town. They both felt that they were Salt Lake City royalty, and that the locals should acquiesce to them. They were the worst of three evils, and Boone would at least restore peace to the region. They promised Boone rewards for doing so, like food, shelter, liquor, and other comforts. If a Mormon is bribing you with liquor, you know they're desperate. Boone soon got down to business. He sidled up to the first man while he was drunk and pissing on the side of a trading post. Boone put his pistol to the man's nape and decorated the trading post's walls with brain salad. He tried to dispatch the other miner in cold blood as he did the first, but the man outran him without catching a bullet. He fled Salt Lake City, never to return. The local government of Salt Lake City were grateful for his services, but there was no benefit in having a known murderer walking the streets, so they ran him out of town. Boonhelm headed toward Colorado. He became a member of a Confederate militia that was heavily invested in killing Native Americans. It wasn't long before he was convinced of their racist beliefs and assumed the worst of Native Americans. Helm sure held up his end of the workload when it came to slaughtering the natives. Among his fellow soldiers, he developed a reputation for being overzealous in this pursuit. For most soldiers, it was about political and cultural ideals, and they were just doing the work they enlisted to do. Boone delivered on these expectations, but he relished the slaughter in ways the other troops did not. Sure, there was scalping and rape among the spoils of victory, but Boone was so invested in mutilating the women that it took precedence over rape. The other soldiers would pass a woman around to be raped over and over for the moral support of the men in uniform. They would take a pass after Boone was with her. They didn't want to rape an amputee awash in her own blood. Eventually it was too much even for these battle-hardened men of war and they dispatched Boone, along with another soldier whose antics they had grown tired of, to do some scouting out in the wilderness. He never did well out in the middle of the wilderness. There was no one to kill, no liquor to drink, and no time for loafing around. He was supposed to be patrolling, and it became a tiresome chore. At one point, Boone became fed up with the boredom and went his own way. The other scout decided to follow him. Boone met some other men throughout his travels. He killed them and took their belongings. He amassed $30,000 worth of gold from their bags. 
he and his companion dug a hole and buried it with the intention of retrieving it at a later date, when the law would not be beating a path to them. Helm's victims were found and brought to a town. Though no one initially suspected Boone of being the murderer, a man came riding into town warning everybody that needed to know that someone recognized Boone Helm after he left Antler Creek and that he was armed and dangerous. A description of Helm was fleshed out and a bounty of $700 was placed upon his head. Helm left town just before some men met to form a posse to find Boone. Boone and his friend from the militia entered Canada en route to the Yukon. Two men by the names of W.T. Collinson and Irish Tommy were involved in the search party, though their bravery was in short supply. If ever they heard a twig snap behind them, they would draw their pistols in immediate response. When you're seeking a homicidal, psychopathic cannibal, like Boone Helm, you were better off without resting on your laurels. The specter of death snuck up on Collinson and shouted, Throw up your hands! When Collinson turned around, he saw Boone Helm at the other end of a double-barrel shotgun. The muzzle was close enough that, with a sharp nudge, Helm would have had him spitting chiclets. While Helm kept Collinson trapped like wild game, his accomplice disarmed the men, emptying the revolver's ammunition into his pockets. They took money and whatever valuables remained from their bags. Helm and his henchmen were charitable enough to give their victims their empty guns. Boone said, Get and don't look back. The men ran as fast as they could. Boone was hatching plans to murder his accomplice as they headed to the city of Victoria, British Columbia. When he took up a stool at the Adelphi Saloon, he found that nobody recognized him. He foolishly gambled away much of his money. Back home, people would have given it back just to avoid being beaten up. Not here. When the bartender announced closing time, he asked Boone to settle his tab. Boone said, with an insidious grin, Don't you know that I'm a desperate character? The bartender didn't know who he was, but he had encountered the type before, and attended to the matter in his customary fashion. He sent a boy to the police. One Sergeant Blake was dispatched to the scene. Blake had heard of Boonhelm, not just his name, but his killing spree. According to law, Boone could be incarcerated for three days before being charged. He threatened his accomplice through implication so that he didn't confess about what they had been up to. Meanwhile, Blake was sending letters all over the place in hopes that anybody who had been wronged by Boone would answer the call to charge him. The answers never came. Blake didn't believe anything that came tumbling out of Boone's face as words, so his interrogations didn't yield the fruit he was seeking. Somehow, Boone convinced a lawyer to represent him pro bono, with a promise to pay him on the back end. Blake decided a more effective way to get the intel he wanted was to question Boone's companion. In the middle of questioning, the man's body shut down and he was soon dead. No evidence could be provided to substantiate that Boonehelm was guilty of anything other than neglecting to settle his bar tab.
He was freed on a bail of $50. Blake wasn't exactly thrilled by this verdict, and he was tempted to shoot Helm right there in the courtroom. There was a glimmer of hope on the horizon, however. Boone didn't have $50 in cash on his person. He also didn't have any valuables he could sell. Boone Helm was sentenced to a month on a chain gang. He would pay off his fine in the form of hard menial labor in service to the city of Victoria. In the process, he would also be compensating the bar owner. Boone hated the work he was doing with the chain gang. He had never worked that hard in his life. An honest day's work was something he avoided at all costs. All he knew were drinking, whoring, murder, and cannibalism. With the chain gang, he was supervised by a deputy bearing a shotgun. For the time being, there was no way Boonhelm would be able to dine on any part of a colleague's anatomy. If he had attempted to carry out a mutiny, that idea would have been blown out the other side of his head before the plan reached the conclusive phase. For him, it was pure slavery, the most arduous four weeks of his life. After Boone served his four-week sentence with the chain gang, an extradition letter arrived from authorities in the United States. Boone finished his sentence at the same time as another man, who came to be known as Dirty Harris. He and Boone sought adventure elsewhere. Dirty Harris owned a pack train. Boone Helm accompanied him en route to Antler Creek, where he had left his most valuable possessions. While they passed through Sumas, British Columbia, Boone happened to pass W.T. Collinson on the street. Normally, Boone would have murdered him, but there would have been too many witnesses. They also happened to be standing outside of a police precinct. Collinson befriended many of the local men, so, either way, he was insulated from Boone's propensity for homicidal violence. Boone and his friend rode on. Collinson got on a horse and rode to Fort Yale, where he reported Helm's presence and whereabouts to the British. The British troops were unable to track down Helm and his accomplice. The area was not good for hunting, with wild game being in short supply. They began to wonder if the men might have wasted away from starvation and had perished. When they caught up with Boone Helm, he didn't put up any resistance. The forest chewed him up and spat him out, as always. He was starving and exhausted after a long month of travel. The officers interrogated Boone to ascertain the whereabouts of Dirty Harris. Boone told them they hadn't parted ways. He said Harris was still among them. He clarified this by saying, Why, do you suppose that I'm fool enough to starve to death? When I can help it, I ate him up, of course. Though the cavalrymen took it to be a morbid joke, they recalled the rumors they had heard about Boone and his vampiric taste for human flesh. Boone was placed in irons to prevent escape. He was soon extradited back to the United States to face justice for the crimes he committed there. While in prison, Boonhelm managed to escape by using a gardening trowel to dig a hole in the dirt floor of his cell. He made his way once again to California. He acquired a knife, a pistol, 
and other improvements on his fortunes. Upon his arrival in California, Helm discovered that news of his escape from prison had arrived before he did. He had to keep a low profile, which meant sleeping outdoors and eating a plant-based diet, since a campfire would attract attention. He was found by a rancher. The rancher was cut from the same time-worn and ragged cloth as Boone, and he was hospitable. He fed and sheltered him. The men got to talking, sharing their many stories. At one point, Boone confessed to eating the flesh of the man he traveled with. The man wasn't judgmental. He knew what the drive to survive can push a man to do. Boone spent many weeks at the rancher's farm. He was never asked to contribute in any way. The rancher was a bachelor and appreciated the company. They had fun together, playing cards and drinking whiskey. Eventually, wanted posters of Boone Helm were posted throughout the area. Helm now knew it was time for him to leave. One night, Boone left without thanking the rancher for everything he had given him. In fact, not only did he not thank him, but he shot him several times. As the process of rigor mortis was underway, Boone opened every drawer, chest, and cupboard in the house to find something on which to capitalize. He got on one of the man's horses and rode away. When Boone arrived in Oregon, he was disappointed to find that the villages were modernized and more heavily populated as a result, making it difficult for him to travel incognito. The men he had once known there were either dead or had migrated. He didn't dare mention his name to anybody. He was one of the most wanted men in America. When he arrived in the town of Florence, he was recognized by men who remembered him from his last stint in the town. They reported his presence to wealthier, more connected men. Like in Salt Lake City, a murder was subcontracted to Boone Helm. The victim was to be a man known as Dutch Fred. Boone promised he would leave town immediately after the murder. He was determined to snuff the man out. His reputation was on the line. He shot him in the heart. When he approached his wealthy clients, they acted like they had never known him and refused to compensate him for his efforts. When he threatened them, the local sheriff turned up and Boone fled. Boone decided to head back to Canada. Before he could cross the border, he was accosted by bounty hunters and brought to Portland, where he was remanded to jail and awaited extradition back to Florence. When Boone stood trial, he received an unexpected stroke of good luck. Nobody was available or willing to testify as a witness to the murder of Dutch Fred. When Boone was released, it was into the welcoming arms of his wealthiest brother, Old Tex. There were gold miners who knew very well what Boone had been up to, but Tex bought their silence with the actions of paid hands who used guns and threats to ensure their silence. Tex and Boone headed toward Texas. Tex offered Boone two options for a prosperous future. A position in the Confederate Army, for one, 
Tex had connections, so Boone wouldn't have to linger as an infantry man for long. The other was a position with a mining company. Either way, Boone had opportunities to pursue an honest living and a life as a law-abiding citizen. The problem was, taking Tex up on these offers meant that his approval would govern Boone's life. Boone had gotten very used to being on his own and answering to nobody. During a stopover in Idaho, while Tex and his entourage were asleep, Boone stole one of their horses and rode off into the night. Boone eventually made his way to Montana. He was intercepted by members of a gang called the Innocents. They were led by a corrupt sheriff named Henry Plummer, who operated on both sides of the law. He organized several robberies, which were often committed in conjunction with murder. He knew who Boone was, and knew even more about his criminal past. Plummer enlisted him to join in his crimes. Plummer and his gang would eventually be brought to justice for their crimes, Boone Helm among them. Boone was brought to the town square of Virginia City, where he stood trial for his latest offenses. When he was presented with a Bible, he deflected blame, insisting that a man known as Three-Fingered Jack was the real perpetrator. Jack screamed from the basement window of the local jail, but it made no difference. He was assumed to be guilty, and so was Boone. The men were to be executed by hanging. 3,000 people turned up to watch the execution. Not only were two of the men celebrities, but it was unusual to watch four offenders hung at once. Three-fingered Jack was the first to have the box kicked out from underneath him. His neck didn't break right away. He swung back and forth like a pendulum, kicking his legs while his face turned purple. At one point he turned and faced Boone. Helm shouted, Kick away, old fellow! It is my turn next. I'll be in hell with you in a minute. The executioners didn't want to hear another word from Helm, so they advanced to his box next. He didn't want to give them the satisfaction of deciding on the exact moment of his demise, so he decided to kick the box out himself. Before he did so, he proclaimed, Every man for his principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis. Let her rip. When he fell from the box, his neck snapped right away, killing him. As his body swung from the rope, he knocked a man named Zachary from his box, killing him. Even in death, Boonhelm took another life. Nobody could stop him. Nobody. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>